0: All right, all right, hey. online, folks. Hey, thanks so much for uh, joining us uh, today. Hope you're doing fantastic. Hope you've already had a great morning uh, of worship. Let us know how we can serve you in any way. Uh, comment section below, let us know uh, how we can serve you, maybe where you're viewing from. But before we uh, jump in, let me give a special shout out to Sherry from uh, Diller, Georgia. Sorry about your Bulldogs yesterday. Christine from uh, Brevard over there in Transylvania County. And then Donna from uh, Cape May in... New Jersey. Thanks so much, along with the rest of folks. Thanks for joining us today. Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you would. Turn to Mark chapter 10. As you saw from the video, uh, we're in a series uh, called This Must Be Greater Than That. And really what it is, it's looking at the response for the church and then Christ followers in this particular cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And we've been kind of juxtaposing uh, what is the common cultural trend toward how Christ followers are supposed to uh, behave and supposed to shine and supposed to act. And we've been in a been in in about six weeks. We've got at least one more week. We've looked at everything from love must be greater uh, than, than hate. Uh, uh, Repentance must be greater than uh, rebellion. Uh, Last week, passion must be uh, just passion must be greater than just our apathy. It must be greater than just our complacency. And today, let me go ahead and kind of give you a fair warning and ask a favor of you. Uh, today is an uncomfortable text, all right? Uh, when I think about today's text and what we're going to talk about as a topic, what I uh, think about is actually a commercial. When I was watching TV last week with Lori, this commercial came on. I don't even remember the product, but all I remember is it took, it seemed like, a minute of all, nothing but the side effects and the pain that you would endure if, in fact, you took this particular medicine to try to treat this bigger problem. And they just went on and on and on and on, nausea, sleep problems, constipation, gas, vomiting, seizures, allergic reactions, sleepwalking, swelling, trouble breathing, rashes, blisters in your mouth, over and over. I remember I just turned to Lori and I was like, I don't even know what this product is, but I'd rather have the disease than the side effects. And, but honestly, that's really not true because actually that product sells like crazy. And the reason is that people said as bad as it, uncomfortable as the side effects might be, if it gets to the main disease, if it ends up taking care of the main issue, I'm willing to go through some uncomfortable times to go ahead and, and beat this thing that's been beating me for a long time. So, uh, Again, we're gonna look at a difficult text. It is gonna be uncomfortable, but what my hope is, is that by the end, you will see this as a, as a beautiful text. If you feel condemned, that's not that's not my purpose today. I mean, God is a God of conviction, not condemnation, all right? He's a, he's a God of comfort, and so conviction is great, comfort is great, uh, but if you feel condemned either by him or by the church, that is not what we're looking for at all. What I'm gonna ask you to do is resist the temptation as soon as we jump into the text, resist the temptation uh, to just flip the computer off and just say, "You know what? I don't even want to deal with this. It's too painful. I don't like what I don't like what happens to me when I even uh, think about this." And um, as you're going to see, and what I'm going to confess to you is the fact that divorce has affected a ton of people in our church. Maybe it's affected you, maybe it's in your past, maybe you're going through it right now. And what I want to encourage you on is, even though it might have been the most painful time in your life, I know it's for a lot of you, like, I wish I could have avoided it. I would have if I could. And uh, I want to encourage you, it's not the unforgivable sin, all right? That's the way a lot of churches that's the way a lot of Christians see divorce. They're like, you know, are well, you gonna have a, a big scarlet D on your chest for the rest of your life? And I hope by the end of the message, you'll see that that's not true, that's a lie. But to get there, we're gonna to have to walk through some uncomfortable waters. And so uh, stay with me and I think God will bless you. And here's what it is, for, really for the first three to 500 years of the church, these, this text was not even a problem whatsoever. They actually took it so seriously that Christian marriages were so formidable that the culture would look at that and just go, man, wow. Look how long they stayed together. They stayed together forever. As a matter of fact, that uh, in Matthew's parallel account, after he does this teaching, the disciples look at each other and go, man, if, if that's what marriage is, maybe it's better not to marry at all. And so if there's not at least a little bit of that when you and I read this text, then maybe you and I aren't getting it like he wanted us to get it. So I'm going to jump into the text. We're going to do some work on the front end. And uh, again, I, I don't want to belabor this point, but you can find people to sit there and say that this text does not mean, you can find preachers just around the street, just, you know what, this text does not mean what this text clearly, plainly means. And I'm going to get to that at the end, but... Uh, Let's go through the text and let's see what God has for us today. And where my prayer is again, is that you will see that the pain, the pain is worth it, that I've kind of got to, it's kind of got to hurt to get to the healing. So here I am. Mark chapter 10, verse two, let me walk you through this. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, him as Jesus asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So let me give you a little bit of the context that Jesus is becoming more and more popular in this day and time, and so the Pharisees were always trying to get that aha moment with Jesus. They were always trying to trap him, they were always trying to trick him, and one of the things they would oftentimes do is try to put him set against a Moses. Moses was obviously revered by the Jewish people, and if they could get him saying something contradictory to what the law was and what Moses told the Jewish people, then they could start to sow some doubt that, you know what? Jesus isn't who he says he is. And so divorce was super rampant in that day as it is in this day. And the question they put on the floor is this, is, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife and still be good with God? Give us the specific circumstances, how we can do that. Show me the loophole, give me the fine print. How can this happen? And so let me read verse three and four and tell you what the two views of that day were. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Let me stop there for a second. The raging debate or a raging debate of the first century in Judaism was over a somewhat of an obscure verse in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. Don't turn there, but let me just read it because it's very important for you to understand that's the context. But Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one is what the Pharisees are referring to. And here's what the first verse says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because, and here's the important phrase, because he has quote, found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house over and over and over again. So here's here's the trap is what did, what did Moses mean when he used the phrase, some indecency? What does that mean? All right. Two basic schools of thought in first century Judaism that they're trying to trap him with. The first one is just kind of the progressive view. All right, There's a rabbi named Hillel, and the progress, he was the progressive of the day. He basically said what that phrase means is you can divorce your wife for any and every reason. I'm talking about every reason, all right? If she embarrasses you in front of your friends, you can divorce her, all right? If she puts on uh, you know, a corn tummy and gains five pounds, you can divorce her. There's even writings where it's like, if she burns the toast, then you can divorce her. And for obvious reasons, that was the majority view in that day and time. Now, the other view that was the conservative view basically said this, what Moses meant there is that indecency meant simply adultery. That's what physical intimacy with somebody else. That's what it meant. There was a guy named Shammai and it's like, you know what? That's what it means. And so what they're asking Jesus is, where do you stand on divorce? Do you stand with the progressive view or do you stand with the conservative view? And what you're going to see is Jesus goes even stronger than the conservative view. So here's verse five. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you, he wrote you this commandment. So real quickly, back when Deuteronomy 24 was written, the men in that culture were kicking their wives out of their house, divorcing them, and their wives had no place to go in that culture. So listen to me carefully. In order to protect women, Moses instructed that they would give a certificate, a certificate that would show that, you know what, listen, I'm not running around on him. I'm not sleeping with somebody else behind his back. And that certificate would be something to formally be able to give usually to like her extended family, that her family would then welcome her back into the house. The clear point is that was a concession to deal with the breakdown of marriage because the man would not care for his wife. So verse six to nine, and he's actually gonna say, you know what, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking, is there a loophole? How do I get out of my marriage? You don't even know what marriage is to begin with. He goes back to the first two chapters of the Bible and he says this, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male, Hebrew word is ish, and female isha, because she came out of male. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. If you underline in your Bible or highlight in your Bible, that would be a great phrase to do it. They shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus adds this, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's what he's he's saying. You're asking the wrong question. You're trying to get out of a marriage and you don't understand marriage to begin with. And he goes back to the beginning where God creates male and female, brings them together. When you look at the context, Adam, the male, is so fired up when God brings the female to him, he like sings the love song. He goes all Barry Manilow and starts to write poetry right in front of his wife. And then in uh, verse seven, which is a quote of 224, it simply says that, you know what? They will leave father and mother and the two will become one flesh. And here's what's really important. It's very clear from the text that from Genesis two into what Jesus is doing. The Bible always goes back to that original marriage as the template as the paradigm for our marriages now. In other words, think about it this way. I mean, Adam didn't even have a father or a mother to leave. Eve had no choices. Eve couldn't go around and go, well, you know what? Uh, You know, Adam's not that awesome. Maybe I'll check out some of these other guys. There were no other guys. And so it's like, this is gonna be the ground zero for a theology of marriage. And what he says is, and what I ask you to underline is that phrase, the two shall become one flesh. The Hebrew word is uh, like, I think it's pronounced ehad, ehad. It's kind of like a little, ehad. And the reason I can remember that because it sounds a lot like it's hard, it's hard. That's the way it sounds like because marriage is hard and it means one flesh. And when they combine it together, it basically means fused together at the deepest levels. And so in God's economy, in God's equation, in God's math, here's what he's saying. He's saying one and one, and when you bring them together, it's one. Saying one plus one equals one. It's actually the same word that in the great famous prayer of the Shema, the most famous prayer that the Jews would ever pray. It's like the Lord our God is one. That's the same word when he says, I'm going to bring a male and a female together and they're going to be, they're going to be one flesh. And what he says is don't attempt in verse nine, don't attempt to un-one what God has made one. It's like, don't do that, don't attempt to do that. I've joined something together at the deepest levels, physically, spiritually, financially, and the deepest levels, I've taken one and another one and I've made them one flesh. You're like, well, thank you for the Hebrew lesson. Thank you for the theology. What do I do with this? How do I make this work? Because the truth be known, is like my marriage is hanging on by a thread. So how do you download this into life? Let me give you a couple of principles I think that'll help. The first thing you see from this text is, let's just look at it this way. We've got to replace consumer thinking. Replace consumer thinking with covenant thinking. That's really what he's describing here. He's describing a covenant. There were two visions of marriage back then, just like there's two visions and understandings of marriage today. First one is consumer. It's a consumer and the consumer relationships are okay. Okay. We have those all the time. Basically a consumer relationship is this, is, is, uh, you figure out what you need and who can best meet that need. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do it all the time. I do it with a grocery store, All right, uh, That's close to me. The prices are good. So that's the grocery store we tend to use. Uh cell phone contract. I've got the one that had the best price and the, uh, the best reliability. And I picked that one as well. You do that with a coffee shop. All right. I go to a coffee shop. Why? Because I like their product. I like what it does for me. I like their prices and I certainly like their convenience. I like their hours. Um, but if I find one that's more convenient or with better locations or better pricing, then I go there. All right. That is a consumer relationship. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you see your marriage as a consumer relationship. You see it as somebody that can do something for me. And if they cease to do something for me, then I am ghosting on this whole relationship. And that's where it starts to break down. That's our culture, all right? That's where the lie comes in and please hear me. We don't have time to download all of this, but we've talked about it numerous times. Please understand me, ladies, there is no man that is gonna quote, complete you. Okay, regardless, regardless of romance novels, regardless of movies, regardless of television, regardless of uh, uh, country songs, regardless, like, you know what, if I can just find that guy, then he will complete, listen, no guy can fix what is broken in you. Men, the same thing. You can find your dream and it's awesome, but she can't fix what's broken in you. And what we tend to do is we think that if I can just find him, if I can just find her, then, then I'm going to be fixed. But please understand this, those good things, that's a gift from God. Please clear. A spouse is a phenomenal gift from God. But when we make a good thing, a good gift from God, and we make that God himself, he's supposed to fix me. She's supposed to fix me. That ends up being very destructive because what always, we've seen it a thousand times. Well, we idolize on the front end when they don't meet our expectations and they are crushed under the weight of trying to be something they were never created to be. What you idolize on the front end, you will demonize on the back end and say, you know what, they let me down. They weren't what they were supposed to be. And in reality, they were never meant to fulfill that role. And, um, What you end up having is like, you know what? He's going to fix my insecurity. He's going to fix my fear. He's going to fix my loneliness. And you know what? Listen, lonely, insecure, angry, single people end up being lonely, insecure, angry, married people. And so when you look at this, a covenant is totally different. A covenant we don't use that word very much. I mean, when's the last time you thought of what a covenant is, but basically a covenant is a, it's like a turbo powered promise. It's more than a contract. It is more than a promise. Even it's like a mixture of the two together. And the idea is it's a binding relationship where the good of the relationships takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. And what you have to understand is really clear in the Bible is marriage is actually supposed to be a super clear picture of the gospel. I mean, read Ephesians five sometime and you'll see it throughout that whole, that's, that's the theology of marriage, all right? Jesus teaches it in the apostle Paul, then elaborates and quotes a lot of what Jesus is saying here. It's like, that's it. And so husbands, for example, it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, all right? That's covenant language. He's saying, just like Jesus loves you, even on your worst days, he said, your love for your wife should mirror that. It should picture that. You should be able to say, you know what? I'm learning a little bit about the gospel when I observe the way that you treat your wife. I mean, that's heavy. But about five or six verses later, it says, you think I'm talking, you think I'm talking about marriage? I'm really talking about the gospel and marriage is an illustration of that. So it's covenant. It's covenant we use covenant language in the wedding ceremonies. We just don't sometimes understand what's going on. In, in the marriage ceremony, there's typically a vertical aspect and a horizontal aspect, all right? The vertical aspect. The vertical aspect is when the minister usually talks to the bride and the groom and he's talking to them. And what happens is he's like, you know what? And he says this phrase and all you're supposed to do is say, I do. Okay, technically you're talking to the minister, you're looking at the minister, but really what you're doing is you are making a vow before God that this is what it is. I'm making a vertical decision before God that I'm making a covenant with this person. And you say, I will, or or, or I do, But then the next part is that horizontal. I usually have the bride and the groom, I usually have them look at each other. And then you say something like, do you take, and you fill in the name, do you take Stuart to be your lawfully wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse for rich or poor till death do us part for the glory of God, amen. It's like, I do, I take Stuart to be my lawful wedded husband, to have and to hold. And when they're repeating that, they are expressing that I'm making a covenant with you. We are covenanting together. It's more than a contract. It's a covenant. But it gets really messy here at the very end of the text when he shows this. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And we don't know what they asked him. This is probably the time when they're like, man, that's like really serious. Maybe it's good that we don't get married. And then he says this. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her? Actually, that's not the way he said it, that's the way we read it. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So another questions are kind of flying. It's like, well, yeah, but what about if they did this? What about if this what if I didn't know? So the best thing when you look at verses like this is uh, before you sit there and go to some commentary and ask some preacher down the street, hey, could you tell me why these verses don't mean what these verses seem to be saying? The best way to do that is to let the Bible be the commentary on the Bible. And so don't turn to these, but listen to them and it's repeating the same thing. Matthew 5, 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wait a minute, that's the same thing. Well, Matthew 19 says this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. Like, wait a minute, that is like a hard saying. Don't flip the computer off. Because the question is, okay, If it's about a covenant, when does the covenant get broken? Or another way, when is it okay, when does the Bible teach, is it ever okay to divorce? And by the way, if if there's a reason for divorce, a biblical reason, then there would be a biblical reason corresponding to being remarried as well. So, is it ever okay to divorce? I think the Bible gives you three examples of where it's not commanded but there is a concession for divorce first one would be first one would be adultery would be adultery that's really what the dominant part of what he's talking about here is when a spouse cheats on you especially ongoing unrepentant adultery he's going to say adultery kills the covenant adultery kills the covenant now listen this is not your first response But he's saying this can be a last resort. I mean, he said divorce is going to be like a, it's like an amputation. I mean, there's going to be great pain there and he's not commanding it, but there is a concession. And the reason he doesn't command it, think about the covenant God made with us through Jesus. I mean, Jesus is faithful to his bride and Jesus does not divorce his bride, even when the bride, his church is very unfaithful. Listen, the tomb is empty, so anything is possible and he can breathe new life into that marriage. Some of the strongest marriages at our church have that in their past. But that is one That is one concession. Second would be this, be abandonment. Abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, the Corinthians were kind of crazy and um, when God moved in there, you had a lot of marriages where you, were, you had a pagan uh, married to a brand new believer. In, in a nutshell, what he says in First Corinthians 7, starting at about verse 15, basically, if one is a Christian and the other one is not a Christian, if the non-Christian leaves and deserts or abandons the Christian, then you know what he says? The Christian is free. Free to divorce, free to remarry. If he divorced you, if she divorced you, whatever. But he's, he does say, if you are the believer and you're married to a non-believer and they don't initiate it, then you don't initiate it because it says they might see the gospel in you, your love for Jesus, your love for them through Jesus. It says, you know what? You could be the tool that God uses for the gospel to spread in your family. And here's a third one. Some people would not agree. This is, but I I think it's fairly clear and it would be this. It would be abuse. So listen to me carefully. So you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. First of all, obviously, if you're being abused, I'm talking about physical abuse. If you are being abused, Please call the authorities. Please call the authorities. Just call them. Somebody needs to go to jail. They are acting like an unbeliever. And I would say this, separation is a must and divorce is an option. I think when you look over into Malachi, when he's talking about divorce, he also talks about how divorce was intertwined with violence toward the spouse. And so I would put abuse in there, the fact that the covenant got killed when... He broke it by using violence. So you're like, what do I do? That that helps me what I need to do in the most dire circumstances. How do I fire this thing up that I'm in right now? And we're just, it's a lot more woe than wow right now. We've been married, we got the seven-year itch, we got the 10-year itch, the one-year, 30-year itch. What do we do now? And here's what I would just simply say from this text. Make a commitment today to renew the covenant. Just renew the covenant Renew the covenant. First of all, renew the covenant with your spouse. A bunch of questions come up when you look at verse 11 and 12. You're like, wait a minute. My first marriage and divorce was not a biblical divorce. So if that wasn't a biblical divorce and I sinned anyway and I got divorced, am I now sinning now in my second marriage? And so what do do I, do I break the covenant with my second spouse to go try to make the... A lot of questions, and so let me be clear. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where breaking a second covenant is uh, gonna help you having broken the first covenant. And so whatever state you find yourself in now, stay in that marriage, recommit to living covenantally and not contractually. And by all means, please, and some of you use this as the reason to get out of your first marriage. You can reject it this time, reject the myth We talked about this 10 times in the last decade together. Reject the myth of the right person. Okay, let's just field dress that thing once and for all, reject the myth of the right person. That is the culture right now. And church and Christians, we bought into that. And basically what the right person myth says is, you know what, my missing half is out there and if I can just find the right person, then I'm going to be happy not even realizing that you thought your first marriage, that that guy, that girl was the right person and then became the wrong person because you found what you thought was the right person. Listen to me. That whole idea of the missing half, that is not Jesus. That's Plato is who that is, all right? That's mythology. That goes back to a myth, a Greek myth, where they're trying to look for their other half that they've been cut into, and if I can just find that other half, then I would be complete. That's not biblical. That's not Jesus. That is... Plato. And so if you're a Christ follower, you just got to figure out, uh, you always marry in some ways the wrong person. Why? Cause you married a sinner just like they did. If that person, no matter, cause right now you might be newly married or you might be engaged and you're like, man, we never fight. Some of you are actually kind of blowing me off right now thinking, you know what? Uh, we're doing great right now. We're doing great. Maybe we not even married yet. and We never have an argument at all. You know why? Because dating is voluntary and marriage is compulsory. And so when you think I've found the right person. I'm not saying you can't do all this stuff about trying to figure out chemistry. That's all that stuff is great. But bottom line, when you stand before God and say, I do, he or she becomes the right person. And so you're like, well, what should you do? What you have to understand the point of marriage is not for you to find your missing half. I mean, this is so crucial, both for are you going to get married, when you're going to get married, who you're going to get married to, and how do you stay married. The point of marriage is not, hey, I'm searching out there somewhere in wonderland for a unicorn and my missing half. That's not what it is. It is to help that other person become all that God intended them to be. And then the two partner to that end. They see the best in each other, the person God created them to be, and then they push and they pull toward that end. Okay, don't get married because you think that person, that he or she is the one. I mean, trust me, please trust me. This is Uncle Bruce here. Trust me, they're not, they're not. And you will see that Once the veneer comes off, they're not the one, okay? There is no such thing. But do get married when you see who God is making somebody to be. And that just fires you up. You see what God is doing in somebody's life and that fires you up and you're like, I wanna be a part of that story of transformation. I wanna be a part of that journey into the future. And you're well aware that's gonna be a long ride and that's gonna be a bumpy journey And it's not going to have its, without its hiccups. But what we're doing is like, you believe God is calling them and moving in their life. You're like, man, I want to be a part of that whole journey. And that's what marriage is. And my wife makes me a fun, it makes me such a better person. She calls out the best in me. She calls me to live up to who I am, to who God is still making me to be. Because believe me, they will change. It's often been said that Men marry thinking that their wives will never change. Wives marry thinking they can change their husbands. Neither are true. Lori's probably been married to five different Bruces over 30 years. Why? Because we grow and we change and God changes us. And that's what marriage is because we're in a covenant together. So, uh, but it does come back down to your covenant with God, the, the gospel. I know we've picked off some scabs. Please hear me while the Bible does say God hates divorce, he doesn't hate divorced people. Such a crucial distinction, both for churches to make and for you to make. Conviction is awesome. It's restorative. Condemnation is not. And if you don't need to know anything else, redemption over sexual sin and over divorce is all over the scriptures. It's all over. Now listen, maybe you made some terrible mistakes. Maybe you're looking back and you're like, man, I'm on, I've made some terrible mistakes in my marriage in my previous marriages. I've made some terrible mistakes. Listen, uh, there's some things you can do in repentance. Maybe some phone calls you need to make to apologize or own your part or whatever, but you can't change what you did now. Okay. That doesn't mean God is through with you. And this is not preacher talk. I mean, look throughout the Bible. Look at, look at some of the examples that are extreme. John chapter four. I mean, John chapter four is the woman at the well. She didn't even go to the well except at midday because of the shame over her life. And she ends up meeting Jesus and they're talking to each other. And eventually uh, he kind of probes in there and he says, uh, he makes a question and she's like, well, I, I have no husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands. Now just think about the baggage. Think about the relational strain. She's had five marriages and she's living with somebody now who's not her husband. And what happens? Jesus shows her grace, shows her redemption, brings her back. And if you read the story, she goes back and tells her whole town, gives her testimony, and the whole town has revival. Skip ahead a few chapters. It's John chapter 8 It's the woman caught in adultery. I mean, she is caught, the, the way the, the verb tenses are, she is literally caught in the midst of adultery. So she's dragged out of some house, probably at most barely clothed. And she's thrown in front of a bunch of people. She is waiting for the first stone to hit her. But instead of the stone hitting her, she gets run over by the grace of God. And so what happens? He's, you know, remember he, he kneels down. He looks her in the eye. He looks her in the eye. And he's like, where are your people that condemn you? She's like, they're gone. They're gone. And here's what, she, here's what he says. Remember, it's like awesome, awesome, awesome. He says... Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, identity, go and sin no more. He wasn't light on the sin. He was heavy on the grace. But in order to get to the grace, you had to acknowledge your sin. Go and sin no more. If you need another, go Old Testament, David and Bathsheba. I and mean, think about this. I mean, that's the worst of circumstances. I mean, read the story. I mean, David's sitting there, he's lazy one day, he looks out, sees a woman bathing, uses his power to bring her over to his house, sleeps with her, she gets pregnant to try to cover it up, has her husband killed. Like, man, how could God ever use that jacked up of a marriage, because he ended up marrying her. And from that marriage came Solomon. Solomon's like the wisest person in the world. And then he had a son, and he had a a son, and 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 go down far enough, and that's how we, that's, That's what God used to bring us Jesus. And so uh, here's here's the response. I know it's been heavy. I know there's been a lot of probably stuff you don't want to hear. But what I want you to understand is conviction is awesome. Conviction is from God. Conviction is to bring us back, not to pay us back. you got to understand that. And there's a song. We don't usually do a song at the end of the online service. Usually what we do is I'll just pray and then somebody will come on. But I just want to beg you, please take just a couple of minutes let this song kind of be sung over you, but more importantly, pray to God. It's called, Oh, come to the altar. And the altar, you're like, I'm an altar? I mean, the altar? I'm, at, I'm on my couch. I'm in a coffee shop. All right? I'm just, I'm, just, I'm sitting here in pajamas, still in, my, still in my bed. What do I do? Listen, altar is simply a place where you meet with God. That's what an altar is, a place where you meet with God. And so my challenge would be this. If you are single... Um, you're single, man, lay all your wants, lay all those insecurities, lay all that future, just give it to God. All right. And say, God, you complete me. And if you can't say that with confidence to say, you know what? I'm complete because of what Jesus has done for me. I'm complete because the fact that there's been a point in time in my life when I realized Jesus died for me, not just for me, but Jesus died instead of me. And I reached out and by a hand of faith and said, what you did on that cross somehow counted for me that when you said it is finished, that you paid my sin debt in full. Do you have that? Do you have a time where you said, that is when I became adopted into God's family as his daughter, as his son. And that's where the start, he completes you. If you have the privilege of being married, uh, you should wanna be able to say, I want our marriage to display the gospel. That's what marriage is first and foremost for. It's fun, it's awesome. It's challenging. It's hard. It's all those things. But first and foremost is to display the gospel. So I would encourage you to pray for each other. If you're not used to, maybe just pray silently. Pray silently. Husbands, if you want to lead, why don't you lead? Be the lead confessor. All right. Be the lead repenter and say, you know what? Here's some areas. I failed in some of these areas. We have not displayed the gospel in our marriage. And by the way, again, if sin is part of your marriage, if sin is part of your past where you're like, you know what, I got out of a marriage I shouldn't have, maybe you need to make that phone call and say, you know what, I'm sorry, Uh, I did not, I failed at some of these areas and I'm gonna own that. But your marriage right now, especially if it's your second marriage, if it's your second marriage, just say, God, would you give us some second marriage grace? We're gonna hit our knees and I'd encourage you to hit your knees if you physically can and go, God, would you give us some second marriage grace? If you're in your first marriage, God, our marriage is struggling. Would you pour some grace out on us with the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead? Would you pour that out on our marriage? So let me pray. And then I'm gonna pray briefly. And then you're gonna have about two minutes to pray. So please don't flip the computer off and take this time just to meet with God. Father, I wanna pray that the next couple of minutes would be a crossroads in thousands of people's lives. People watching, whether the marriage is strong, whether the marriage is holding on by a thread. Whether, uh, whether they're single or single again, gotta pray today's text that they would understand the grace of God as well as the guidance of God. And I pray the next two minutes that they would simply be at the altar saying, Here I am. I need your grace to flow into our home. God, thank you for James chapter four, verse six, that says that you will pour out your grace on the humble. And as people all over Western North Carolina, all over our country and even beyond, as they humble themselves and it's a physical look where they're on their knees, God, I pray that you would pour out grace in an immeasurable way onto their relationships with, with you and with other people. In Jesus' name, amen.